you'd like to follow along, the passage is on page six of your bulletin. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. When the man saw that the when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves then the man and his wife heard the sound of the, war, the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden, of the garden. But the, Lord's, the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. The word of the Lord. Oh, I was in the middle of a really good nap, and uh, no, no, um, by the way, for those that maybe don't know me, um, if you're new to our church, my name's Duke, I'm the other pastor here of this church, and we are in the middle, this Advent season, of middle of a sermon series where we are sharing uh, the pulpit across our network, different pastors in our three sister churches that are preaching, in fact, in each of the pulpits of our sister churches. So this morning, I was actually at Grace Mosaic across town, and things went a little bit late there, and so I was hopping in my Uber and texting people here, trying to give some updates on my ETA, and here we are, and the rest is history. So it's good to join you, as you have already been encountering Christ in your worship. I would love to ask uh, for your prayers, as, as you can hear, I am... Uh, feeling a little bit under the weather, as they say, um, and so I'm going to need some help from Jesus and Ricola. Uh, so uh, let's let's pause and let's pray together. Lord, thank you, thank you for your word. Y- you can raise the dead with just one word. You've done it before. And so you've given us a lot of words here, which means that you have the power to raise and to give life to any kind of deadness in our hearts. So please come and give life to our minds, to our hearts, even to our bodies. Give us strength. 
Help us to respond as we encounter truths that maybe shake us up or heal us, challenge us, lay us low or raise us up. Whatever you have in store for us, Holy Spirit, please do it. Shine the spotlight of your glory upon Jesus. Heavenly Father, please answer these prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes, sometimes it feels like you're spending your whole life in the waiting room. It was 10 years ago when one of the members of our church spoke those words to me. And they were shared when he and his wife were going through an extended period, extended season of weariness and uncertainty, waiting, waiting for change. Uh, In the 10 years that those words have popped into my mind at different points, come to conclude that I think he was right sometimes. It feels like you're spending your whole life in the waiting room. Advent invites us to pay attention to our waiting hearts. Friends, what have you been most longing for, aching for, waiting for lately? Is it relief from chronic pain? Or perhaps chronically unpaid bills? Is it a better job? The hope of romance, perhaps? A child? A much-needed break? What have you been waiting for? One of the things that we're waiting for most, I think, one of the deepest longings of our hearts is the longing for intimacy. The longing for intimacy. Now, what's that? What's intimacy? In his book, Grace in Practice, Paul Zahn describes it this way. Intimacy, he says, is seeing into the core of a person while not being repelled by what you see. It's being able to confess the words of Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me and known me and not fled from my presence. In other words, intimacy is being personally near, being truly known and being fully embraced. And you really need all three of those components to enjoy genuine intimacy, don't you? Because you can be physically near to someone, but totally unknown. Like neighbors or even roommates, maybe, who are still strangers. Or you can be known in great detail, but unless you're embraced, you feel like you're living on a performance stage. Or maybe in a police state. Or you can be embraced and known. But if the people around you aren't personally near. Then there's a great distance and disconnectedness. That leaves our hearts unsatisfied. Intimacy is being personally near. Being truly known and being fully embraced. And we long for this. Because we were built for it. Our reading from Genesis 3 as well as the chapter prior to it, Genesis 2, 
remind us that this is so. We were built, we were designed for intimate connection. In the Garden of Eden, the first man and the first woman, they bore the image of God, kind of like a child bears the resemblance of her father or mother. They share a a special bond just for sort of looking alike. We're told that in the Garden of Eden, that the first man and woman were literally housemates with the God of the universe. Imagine that. They lived, we were told in verse 8, in the presence of God. And that expression can also be rendered before the face of God. They were seen by God, known by God, and loved by God, personally warmed by his smile. They daily heard the, the sound or the voice of the Lord God. They had conversations with him. Verse 8 there also suggests that God often walked in the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. What do you think those walks and talks were like? And this rich intimacy was shared not only between God and the first people, but also between the man and the woman themselves. We're told in Genesis 2 verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no Shame. This nakedness, of course, was more than just physical. It was also relational, psychological, emotional, spiritual. They were totally vulnerable to one another and yet somehow totally safe. And there was no hiding and there was nothing to hide. We all have a hope they don't find out about that one part of me kind of list constantly scrolling through our minds, don't we? Maybe it's a physical blemish or or a mistake in your past that's still haunting you. Or maybe it's some weakness that you're embarrassed of. Can you just even imagine having no, I hope they don't see that part about me list ever running through your heart. They had none. We were designed not to have one. We were made for intimacy, and so we crave it. Even from the earliest ages, we crave it. As I was reminded the other day, when my son, lying on the couch, shouted from across the house to no one in particular, who wants to snuggle with me? And you know, some of us are still that five-year-old deep down inside. We were made for intimacy, built for it, but we lost it. That's another part of the story, isn't it? We've become strangers to God and strangers of each other. When sin entered the world, when it infected our own hearts, Suddenly, the man and woman's nakedness felt different. Shame seeped into their soul. You know, shame makes us run for cover. We're afraid of what others might see, the filth, the ugliness. Me, they might see 
me. Intimacy is being personally near and truly known. And sometimes now, that's our worst nightmare, isn't it? Novelist Iris Murdoch once wrote, I hate solitude, but I'm afraid of intimacy. So we hide, just as Adam and Eve hid from God, from one another, from themselves. From whom or from what are you hiding today, beloved? The God of their walks and their talks was suddenly a threat to them. They, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. God's face was once something they craved like a child looking for the gaze of her father. The, the smile on his face now looked like a frown. Where are you? God called to the man. God knew the answer, of course, on a factual basis. But never before had that question even been asked. His children had always been right there by his side. I heard the sound of you in the garden, Adam stammered, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And ever since that day, those words have been repeated thousands of times in the hearts of every single one of us. I felt naked. I was afraid. I hid. Truth is, even that word intimacy it might feel a little bit awkward for you to use it of God. Some of us maybe don't even know that God can be known in that sort of way. What we do know is that even just talking to God can be incredibly hard. We're fidgety and sometimes inattentive when we pray. Prayer is hard. We all confess that. And we also know that, you know, the more familiar we are with a person, whether a loved one or a friend, the easier it is just to sit silent in their presence. You've experienced that. No need to say anything or to do anything, but just comfortably together. What might our difficulty, the real challenge that it is to be silent before God, what might that expose about how unfamiliar God really is to us? We're quick, many of us so quick to affirm that God is love. But if you're a Christian, when was the last time that you said out loud, I love God? Do you? I mean, really love him for all that he is and all that he's done for you. I think you do, many of you. But intimacy can still feel like an awkward expression and an awkward description of your communion with him when so often he can feel so distant. And let's be real, intimacy in our relationships with each other can feel like an even bigger challenge. I mean, can we just be more honest about how lonely it can be out there sometimes? Can this be a safe place where we can confess that with no judgment? Because we've all been there. In many ways, we all are there. 
If we were made for intimacy, why is it so dang hard to find friendship in this city? I wonder what your answer to that might be. We want to be near to others, but but, but only as long as it doesn't violate our independence. We want to be known, but we also want to reserve the right to edit what other people know. Pastor and author Ray Ortland recently wrote, You can be impressive, or you can be known, but you can't be both. And far too many of us have chosen and continue to choose the former, seeking fans and followers instead of genuine friends. And speaking of, social media and our online world, sometimes it can create this false sense of intimacy these days, leading us to feel closer than we actually are. We click a button, just a button, and Facebook tells us, certifies for us that we're actually now friends. Gives us a false sense of access. You never know when a distant celebrity might actually respond to you. The other day I mentioned LeBron James in a tweet just in passing, and I'm pretty sure we're pretty good friends now, right? <laughs> I mean, that's all it takes. Social media also gives us a false sense of vulnerability, doesn't it? Much of what's shared online is what author, writer, Laura Turner has so helpfully called curated imperfection. The careful crafting of the flawlessly flawed version of ourselves that we want other people to admire. We want the feeling of intimacy but without the cost and commitment that true intimacy requires. Which is why casual, non-committal sex can be so attractive, too. Because we want the feeling of intimacy without the cost and long-term commitment that true intimacy actually requires. Well, for you, it might not be sex or social media, but all of us, this question is relevant. Where do you turn for your imitation intimacy fixes? Because we were made for true intimacy, but we lost it in the garden. And we've been filling our lives with its counterfeit ever since we've become strangers to God and strangers of one Another. But there's more to the story. Because God never gave up. He doesn't give up. Because of his great love for us, God sought to restore what had been lost. Friends, do you know the story of God's zealous pursuit of intimacy with you? Just a couple of pages Past our reading in the book of Genesis, we're told of how God found a man named Abraham, who at the time was actually a total stranger to God. God made this deep, personal, intimate bond with him called a covenant. He made Abraham a big promise. I will bless you 
and bless all of your descendants. Not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, but simply because of my grace. It's a gift I give to you. And I will be near to your people. I will be near to them. I will know them. I will embrace them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Abraham's family then increased generation after generation and God kept his promise because that's what he does. And one day God decided that he didn't want just a long distance relationship because as many of you know, some of you, that stinks. He doesn't want a long distance relationship with his people. The God of intimacy wanted to move into the neighborhood. And so he told them to build him a special portable tent that they called a tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary, he said to Moses in Exodus 25, that I may dwell in their midst. I want to be among my people, those whom I love. He wanted to travel with them as they wandered through the wilderness. He would live in in sort of a mobile home. That's what the tabernacle was, you know, a trailer. But even then, you couldn't just waltz right into God's house, just like you wouldn't be able to with a new neighbor that you're just getting to know. Israel was getting to know God, but he was new to them. They were getting acquainted. I don't know what most personal place you have in your home, which room is sort of the the inner sanctum of your home or apartment. For some people, it's the bedroom. For others, it's The man cave in the basement. I don't know what it is for you. But at this point in Israel's history, God let the people onto his porch. And it was only the priest that could occasionally go into the family room, deep into the inner places of the tabernacle. And that part was decorated with symbols like trees, That sort of recalled what was there in the Garden of Eden. You see, because even this mobile home of God's was sort of this way for God to say, I haven't left you, I'm still trying to recover the intimacy I once had with you that I will have with you. God's mobile home, his dwelling place, at this time it wasn't exactly like it was in the Garden Even the more permanent version of God's local dwelling, the temple later on, wasn't quite like what it was in the garden, not yet. But it was a start. And the prophets would speak of a day, one day of renewed and heightened intimacy with God. Sometimes in the Old Testament, chosen leaders were described with terms of just radical intimacy. Abraham mentioned earlier, was later called the friend of God. Uh, Moses, we're told, would speak to God face to face. King David was described as a man after God's own heart. But the prophet said one day there would be a time when all those labels would apply to all of God's people. So close would they be to him, finally. And so we hear from the prophet Jeremiah That one day it would be said, one day when a day that was promised would finally come, it would be said of all God's people that they shall know me 
personally and intimately and truly, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And Ezekiel envisioned the future arrival of of something that he could only see dimly, something that looked like a, a greater tent, a greater temple, a more intimate presence of God in the midst of his sinful people. When he said in Ezekiel 37, my dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. But who could have imagined that God's personal dwelling place on earth might one day be not a place, but a person. Indeed, as John 1.14 testifies, as the word, the Son of God himself, became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle, among us. This is the story of the first advent of Christ, This is the story of Christmas, after all, that at last God's mobile home became a man. His personal presence became a person in flesh, which is why in the book of Matthew, in that first chapter, where we're told the story of Jesus' birth, the author gives Jesus an old, Old Testament nickname that I believe we sang about earlier. I believe because I wasn't here. <laughs> All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us, God finally with us, God at last with us, his personal presence restored to us in the Son of God made flesh, born in vulnerability, now come to deliver us the gospel of God's intimacy. Jesus, who himself would grow and live the life that we couldn't live in order that he might one day die, And die he did on the cross where Jesus was treated cosmically by God in judgment like a stranger, even like an enemy, that we might be treated like friends, like family. Jesus was treated like a stranger in cosmic judgment for all of our sins that we might be brought in to enjoy the intimacy of God. The one who for all eternity enjoyed friendship with God the Father in spirit. Who enjoyed eternal fellowship. Cried out, suffering hell as he did on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you know that Jesus is the one that purchases us this place of intimacy with God. You can know God because of him. You can love God because of him. And he calls you then his friends. As he told his disciples, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Inviting us into the deep places of his heart. That those of you and those of us who feel like we've been far might be brought near to God. 
Because Christ has made a way for you who maybe have been running away from him might finally be able to come home to him. Dear friends, won't you come home? And he calls us children, sons and daughters because Christ has adopted us, has brought us into the family of God that we might even call one another brother and sister. And he sent the spirit of Christ into our hearts. We're told in Ephesians 3 that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Here's a God who does not just stand off apart for you to pray long distance prayers to him or to know him across the expanse of heaven and earth. But here's a God who's so intimate, he even climbs into your soul and inhabits you, makes your life his home. He dwells in you. So close, so near does this God of grace long to commune with you. And yet for all the wondrous blessings of the gospel that we could rehearse, blessings purchased for us through Emmanuel, God with us, who was born and lived and died and rose again for us to bring us near to God. For all that's great about this, dear friends, the story's not finished. The story's not finished as we turn our attention to Revelation chapter 21 where the Apostle John describes this vision of that future day when finally the glory of God's intimate presence in heaven will drop down and cover this earth and renew all things as Christ declares, I'm making all things new. We're told here in verse 3, as I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Recognize those words. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God's great mobile home will finally extend across his people and envelop us in the wondrous, unfathomable nearness of his love. The eternal, infinite presence of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we will finally and forever live in God's family room. The throne room of the king. You know, we're there right now by faith. But on this day, we will be there in person. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And if we take the imagery seriously, you notice God doesn't snap his finger or wave a wand. He personally comes and touches to wipe every tear from your eye. So healing is his personal presence. And we're told this heavenly community gathered and descending is described in verse 2 as being a community prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And again, if we take the imagery that's used here seriously, you hear these marital notes, these wedding notes of consummation. 
Even sexual intimacy as a little bit of an analogy of the degree to which God intends one day to fully bring us into the rapturous passion of his loving presence. Some of you I know are already squirming, but I must continue in this point. That you might understand exactly what it is that God has held out for you and me. Such that A.W. Tozer, the great pastor, preacher, author, can say that the continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love. Thomas Shepard, a Puritan preacher, takes it a step further, perhaps, making use of this marital imagery where he talks about the rapturous love of God, he says, maybe provocatively, consider he makes love to thee. Take thy soul to the bride chamber, there to be with him forever and ever. And the great theologian Jonathan Edwards wrote this, would you have him Nearer to you, speaking of Christ, united to you by a spiritual union so close as to be fitly represented by the union of the wife to the husband, of the branch to the vine. For so he will be united to you if you accept of him. I mean, can you just imagine what could it possibly be like to have unfettered, Eternal, soul-satisfying, heaven and earth transforming intimacy with the presence of God one day. Which transforms, of course, not only our relationship with God, but also our relationship with one another. As the heavenly community, of course, is described as a holy city, Here in verse 2, a city. Sort of evoking imageries of a density of relationships. Uh, The way in which people are, are sort of bumping into each other and maybe for the first time loving it. The proximity of people. This is a community that's been formed no longer with bitterness and envy separating them. No longer hiding from one another. No longer editing the script that's being told about them. In complete vulnerability. Indeed, even nakedness. Without shame. At last. And death shall be no more. No more separation from loved ones. The ultimate loss of human intimacy. No more crying or pain. Which, of course, is because we will have in our hearts a wellspring of eternal joy, but it also means it's because it's the end of all the pain we cause one to another. Don't you know, friends, the heavenly promise that's held out to you, this promise of a God of intimacy, finally unleashing all of himself, restoring what was promised, what was lost, what's being regained, and one day will be yours perfectly in consummation. 
And so you say, Pastor, why, why, why are we talking about this? Where do we go with this? Someone says, Pastor, why did you bring us on this long journey through the Bible? We barely even looked at this Revelation passage. And I could answer that by urging you to spend this Advent to seek deeper intimacy with God. To use this season of the coming of God, the arrival of God, to pray as Charles Spurgeon prayed, O lover of our souls, be not strange to us. Or I could urge you also to take one step in the direction of friendship. Intimacy can sound like an intimidating offer. How about friendship? One step of cultivating maybe one relationship over the next few weeks. As a sign of your belief that even that relationship one day will be made new. Right, hold all that it was intended to be in Christ. Because even here and now, God can and God will give us foretastes in our life and our relationship, in our communion with God and with one another, foretastes of that day that will one day come. I could say those things in answer to that question, but I won't say those things as I just did. But to this question, why this long journey through the pages of Scripture? And my answer is simply this. Because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And you need to know that whatever heartache and heartbreak you are nursing, within you today because of lost intimacy and a longing for intimacy. You need to know today that according to the promise, the long-held promise of Scripture and the guarantee by the blood of Jesus that it will be fulfilled, that all your longings one day will be satisfied, that you can know today with confidence That God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you even in your broken marriage. Where the experience of intimacy seems so long gone. God has not forgotten you. As you grieve lost relationships. Especially those lost in death. God has not forgotten you in those broken relationships in the workplace or at home that just feel like evidence of a betrayal of intimacy. God has not forgotten you as you struggle with besetting sin, maybe those addictive habits in your heart that just seem to be pushing people away and make God feel so far. God has not forgotten you in your loneliness and your longings. He hasn't forgotten you as you try and try to maintain relationships long distance. And as you look around and see so much friendlessness 
pressing in around you. God has not forgotten you as you dare to endeavor to build new community even in the midst of so much brokenness. God has not forgotten you as you strive to know this God who promises such deep communion with you in Christ. God has not forgotten you. He's given you his Emmanuel and his Emmanuel will return. Dear friends, will you believe this promise? The day when we are finally and fully personally near Truly known and fully embraced by God and by other people, that day is coming soon. Let's pray. Hurry that day, Lord Jesus. Hurry that day. Heal our hearts and restore hope in our hearts. Some people have given up on hope. Give them courage to hope again. Satisfy our longings, even for a moment, even for a taste. We know the full satisfaction doesn't come till the day you return. But you can give us enough because you're a fountain of life and of love and the grace of intimacy. So come, Lord Jesus, come near. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.